This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One of history's best-known quotes wasn't spoken on Earth. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Neil Armstrong's monumental trip to the moon in 1969 had everyone looking to the skies and even inspired some to follow in his footsteps as astronauts. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. For this installment of our Ask A series, we're joined by two former NASA astronauts. They'll talk about their experience in space and, of course, answer your questions right after this. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's meet our astronaut guests. Joining us now is Colonel Terry Virts. He's a retired NASA astronaut and former commander of the International Space Station, and he was a test and fighter pilot for the U.S. Air Force. His latest book is The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. It's out this week. He joins us from Atlanta. Terry, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's so good to be on. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Colonel Eileen Collins. Eileen joins us from San Antonio. At NASA, she was the first woman to be a space shuttle pilot and commander. She was also a test pilot for the U.S. Air Force. Her memoir is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. Eileen, it's great to have you. 
Yes, I'm looking forward to the questions. So we have quite a few questions from listeners in our text club to get through. So let's just start with the basics. How did you become an astronaut? Who or what inspired you? Eileen, I'll start with you. The Gemini astronauts, by far. I was in fourth grade. I remember reading an article in a junior scholastic magazine about the Gemini program. I wanted to be just like them, and I read about their backgrounds. I saw that they were military pilots, they were test pilots, they were engineers, and now they're going into space. And I'm a little kid, I'm about nine years old, and didn't know a thing about the space program, but that was what I wanted to do. So I set my career, I set my goals towards uh, becoming one of these Gemini astronauts, and who would have guessed the program morphed through the Apollo program, the moon landings, which were all so inspiring to me as a kid, made me want to study math in college and uh, follow in their footsteps. And I was lucky enough to be selected to be part of the space shuttle program. Wow. Terry, what about you? Um, Similar story to Eileen. The first book I read was about Apollo, and um, I was just enthralled. And when I was 13, a family friend recommended that I read the right stuff. And I read that book. It's a spectacular book, by the way. If the readers haven't read it, highly recommended by Tom Wolfe. And the movie's pretty good, too. It's 40 years old, but it's aged very well. So Um, I followed in in similar footsteps to Eileen, went to the Air Force, was a pilot, test pilot, and uh, eventually I got my dream job of being a space shuttle pilot. Well, a member of our tax club wants to know which was more difficult, physical or academic training. Terry, what, what, what about for you? The most difficult was learning Russian. <laughs> of all the thousand things we had to do, I was a crew doctor. You know, we had to learn how to deal with press conferences. There was all kinds of things you have to learn as an astronaut. But Russian is not, I'm a, I'm a, I love languages. I was a French minor. I lived in France, but Russian is not French. <laughs> Eileen, what was more difficult, the physical or academic training? Well, I would go with the academic, but I'm going to say the Air Force Test Pilot School, to me, was much more difficult than the astronaut training. Uh, The Air Force Test Pilot School was one year. It was flying. It was writing reports. It was uh, giving talks. And, you know, every time you take an airplane out there, you're, you're taking your life with you. So you really are motivated to study and do well. Once I had been through the test pilot program, The NASA astronaut training was actually a a little bit easier because there was some overlap there, especially in the area of flying. But I do want to say something about the physical side. Getting through the medical exam on your uh, astronaut, the astronaut physical, the the week you go for your interview, that is a very, very difficult, uh, I want to say, physical exam. And there's not a whole lot you can do to control it other than keeping yourself in the best health possible because they're... Many uh, applicants are disqualified for things they have no control over, like, you know, their eyesight or maybe their hearing or something like, Mm. something that you really can't do anything about. I want to get back to the question we got from Jay in Oklahoma, who asked, what are your favorite space movies? I mean, once you've been into space, (laughs) does anything really compare, Eileen? Well, Apollo 13 is is definitely my favorite movie, and we... Uh, got a chance to meet the actors when they came in. Uh, had, it was it was actually uh, quite an educational thing for me because I learned more about the Apollo 13 mission as I was kind of following around the actors and the script. And Ron Howard did that movie, and uh, he did a really excellent job on it. So there's there's many many space movies. I recommend all of them, but you got to keep in mind that 
A lot of that stuff is not really possible that happens in those movies, but they're entertaining, they're fun, and I think that the kids should watch them because they're really inspirational. Terry, favorite space movie? Um, I've got a few. I love Apollo 13. I love Interstellar because it's a father-daughter film. Um, There's a movie called Apollo 11. It was a CNN documentary, and when I saw that, in a theater a few years ago, my heart was actually beating faster than it was when I actually launched into space. I helped make a movie called A Beautiful Planet that was an IMAX movie. Um, and it's a great, it's the best way to experience a space mission um, in an IMAX format. But I've got a few. Right <laughs> stuff is great. I could go on. <laughs> I just want to mention uh, we did an interview with Captain Jim um, Lovell, uh, commander of the Apollo 13th. Uh, mission, and you can find that conversation at the 1A.org. Now, I understand, Terry, that you are a Star Trek fan. <laughs> I've had so many unexpected um, like tie-ins with Star Trek. I uh, was out in Hollywood in 2005 when they were filming the final episode of Star Trek Enterprise, and uh, I had a cameo on that. And oh. It was funny for about a decade. If you Googled my name... The only thing you found was that I was on Star Trek for like three seconds with no speaking role. Uh, I'm so um, jealous. <laughs> yeah, I, I was also in space when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Leonard Nimoy passed away, Mr. Spock. And so I did a Vulcan salute tribute on Twitter that got like millions of hits. And it wasn't because of me. No one knows it was me, but just to the love that people have for Star Trek and that character Spock. So, And I've uh, there's a bunch of other kind of strange coincidences that... Um, it's inspirational. I know, yeah. I'm sure Eileen has a similar story. When we're kids, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars, those are, they they spark your imagination. Yeah. Well, I want to go to this message we got from our text club. I've always wondered what astronauts' thoughts were the first time that they looked back and saw Big Blue Earth for the first time. Eileen, what was that like? My first thought was, the Earth is round. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, okay, you People laugh at that, but if I think about my career, all the flying I've done since age 20, I'd look out the front of an airplane and you see a flat horizon. Mm -hmm. My first mission into space, we launched at night and my, I was busy working and my flight engineer sitting behind me said, Eileen, you know, stop working so hard. Stop running your checklist for a minute. Look out the window. This is your first sunrise from space. And I looked out and I saw you know, the, the curvature of the earth and that beautiful rainbow that comes before the sun rises behind the earth. And my thought was, wow, the earth is round. And it, it's so silly to say that, but we orbit the earth once every 90 minutes when we're in the space shuttle or the space station. And occasionally I still come, when I come back to earth, I still hear people ask me, oh, is the earth flat? And I'm just amazed at the mm-hmm. questions that, uh, you know, I'm wondering, are people even learning in school about this planet Earth that we live on, how beautiful it is? And Terry wrote a book, he can probably tell you about it, Photography from Space. The views of the Earth are just incredibly stunning. It just takes the breath, the first time you see it, it just like takes the breath out of your lungs, the gorgeous blue and white planet that we see below. Uh, Terry, I'd love to hear about your experience seeing Earth for the first time. Mm-hmm. My my first launch was at night, and the shuttle does a rolled a heads up maneuver, and it rolled so that I could look out the window for about three seconds, and I saw the East Coast at night. And my first thought was, "There's I ninety five because I grew up on the East Coast, and I was not like Eileen didn't warn me that you could see I ninety five at night um, before I flew." 
But then a few minutes later, we were going over the North Atlantic into that sunrise that Eileen just described. And um, there's blue. There's a lot of blue that you see before the sun rises. And I remember thinking, man, I've never seen that shade of blue before. It really shocked me. I didn't expect to see a different color, but... It was just, it's beautiful. It, like Eileen said, we, I could talk for hours, and uh, I do when I give my speeches about just how gorgeous it is. But that was my first thought. I've never seen that shade of blue before. Mm. We got this question from a member of our tax club about feeling in space. I'm a massage therapist and can't help but wonder, how does human touch feel without gravity and weight? What does a hug in space feel like? Eileen, I'll come to you first. Well, I'm going to say for me, now you might get different answers from different astronauts because the human body, you know, between people is different. But in general, for me, touching just just the nerves in my hands felt the same. But I'm going to tell you something you may not have heard before. What was different for me was when I came back to Earth. Now, I had only spent nine days in space on my first flight, but I come back to Earth. I'm in my house. I go to bed, you know, as usual. When I woke up the next morning, I had lost all feeling in every part of my body. I could not feel a bed I was sleeping in. Apparently, my nerve endings had gone numb from just nine days in space. And it, I started moving around. It took maybe about five minutes for me to get my feeling back. And I went and I had never heard this before. So I went and asked the flight surgeon, uh, you know, hey, I lost the, all the feeling in my skin the, the morning after I came back to earth. And he said, oh yeah, that happens to some people. Like, <laughs> it was not a big deal at all, but I, it was a total surprise to me. How, how did they explain so, explain that phenomena? Well, I think because I hadn't really used that feeling. You know, I hadn't been walking. I hadn't, I, you know, I've been, I was touching things. You know, obviously you're touching switches, circuit breakers, checklists, you know, your meals, you're, you're touching things. But I wasn't really, you know, touching things with my arms and legs and you know, I think maybe if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. But that that's not a very medical explanation. I'm sure that maybe NASA researchers could say something more about that. <laughs> Terry, what about for you? Did, did touch feel different for you in space or, or when you came back home? It's amazing to hear Eileen's story because mine is so similar. I was in space for a few days and I was a rookie. One of my uh, experienced crewmates said, hey, Terry, tap your foot on the ground. So I held myself and we don't wear shoes in space, just socks. And I tap my foot on this metal plate and the most intense, painful electric shock went through my body. It was like I just stepped on an electric train line or something. And I was like, what the heck is that? And I had never heard it just like Eileen. No one had ever told me about this. And so I had this, um, this issue with like electric shock shooting through my body when I went back on my second flight, just lifting weights like in, in your chest muscles. If you're doing a bench press, it felt like electric shock. And so I asked one of the doctors, I said, I've been here for a decade. I've never heard any experienced astronauts say anything. And he said, yeah, some people experience it just like Eileen said. And apparently your nerve endings, you stretch and you grow in space. So apparently for some people, their nerves grow at a different rate than the rest of their body. And that causes this problem. Luckily mine went away. Although I will say that my first shower <clears throat> after 200 days in space, um, was about 12 hours after I landed, and it was super painful. Wow. Like Eileen said, she lost her feeling, but mine, because you don't shower in space, you just use a wet towel. And so for the first time that I had hot water jets, like it was like you know needles going into my skin. So coming back to Earth, the, sh- the shower took a few days before showering was um, okay. But it's so interesting that we both had different experiences, and we never 
heard about each other because I guess astronauts don't talk about that stuff. <laughs> we got this question from Zach who wants to know, do you think our furry friends will ever accompany astronauts in space? Eileen? Wow. Uh, I love that question. Um, I remember in the early days, well, my answer is yes, I think I think it will be tried. Uh, one of the problems would be the litter box or, you know, how you would, you know, handle, I want to say, basic bodily functions of a, your furry friend. Back in the early days of the shuttle, hamsters were flown in what we had a space lab in, in the back with a long tunnel. And the astronauts kept telling the researchers, those cages are not going to work. It was a cage like you would have back on Earth. Well, the commander uh, tells this funny story. He was sitting up in the flight deck, which is quite a distance from the the, uh, cages back in the space hab, and he saw one of the animal's uh, pellets come (laughs) floating by his seat while he was in the commander's seat. So I would say there would be some technical issues that would need to be, uh, I want to say, worked out before you flew any kind of animal in space. Uh, We've flown... You know, um, we flew uh, four large rats on my first mission, and they survived. They uh, they came back fine, but their cage was a mess. Mm. So there's a lot of technical issues, I th- say, that would need to be worked out. How long does it take for you to readjust to gravity, Terry? I mean, how do you readjust to gravity? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great That's actually one of the questions I answer in this new kids' book I have that just came out, The Astronaut's Guide. It took me... Uh, after the shuttle flight, two weeks was a lot quicker than after my 200-day mission. But my first day was extremely painful. I was able to walk around. I was able to sit up and stand up. It was just painful. Like, I was felt very, very dizzy. Um, and then my second day was a little bit better. A few days later, I did a strength test, and I was basically at 90%. I, was, I did 20 pull-ups. I was in pretty good shape because of all the exercise I had done. And a week after I landed, um, the... <laughs> We do this balance test. You get a score. They put you in a box and they shake it and they see how long it takes you to recover your balance. And my score a week after landing, after seven months in weightlessness, was better than it was before I landed or before I launched, which really shocked me. I still can't believe that. But I, for some reason, I just recovered really quickly. Some folks, like two months after landing, they're still not driving because they don't feel quite right. So I think it just depends on the person. And are there permanent changes to your body, Eileen, especially if you've been in space for an extended period of time? Uh, yeah, the science has shown that. Um, I do want to, well, there are permanent changes. I would say the two come to mind immediately. One is the bone loss. I remember one of the early uh, Americans that went to the mirror had 11% bone loss in the ankles. And I'm not sure if that particular astronaut got, I think, got maybe about half of that back in the next couple of years. So bone loss initially was a real problem. They're uh, figuring out how to prevent that because the astronauts are coming back today with much, much less bone loss. I do want to add one other thing that when you asked Terry, a a thought came to mind. I flew four times over a 10-year period. And I'm going to say the older you get, uh, the older a body gets, the easier it is to go up into space. Because of the zero gravity, it's it's pretty easy to live in zero gravity. But the let's harder hear, it is to hear, come back. Let's hear more about that after the break, Eileen. We're answering your questions about space travel and being an astronaut. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. 
Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. Eileen, I want to circle back to what you were sharing before the break about space travel being easier as you age and that it's easier to go up, but it's more difficult coming back to Earth. Please explain. Well, that that was my experience over 10 years. So my first flight, I was 38 years old. And my last flight, I was 48 years old. And I just had an extremely easy time coming back after my first flight. I remember I was running up the stairs and my commander, Jim Weatherby, said, I can't believe you're doing that. You know, how do you have the energy and the you know ability to do that? But after my last flight, I was uh, in no shape at all. I didn't even want to do the press conference. My blood pressure was extremely high. For some reason, I was still dehydrated and I should not have been. And I <clears throat> would not have been in shape to get into an airplane and, and fly it back. And I just attribute that to my age. And, you know, 48 does not really seem that old to me right now. I think I was in fantastic shape back here on Earth. But, you know, the body, it's going to do what it does. I exercised in space, but it, it still didn't help that much. Well, we're getting questions from our text club and via email. And some people want to know about the benefits of space travel when, quote, we have so many problems here on Earth that need to be addressed. Why should this be a priority? Terry, what do you think? Well, this is the age-old question, and we certainly do have problems on Earth that we need to address. But the one thing, well, there's several things that space travel give us. I think the most important is hope and inspiration. Uh, America's always been a frontier nation, and if we can lead the world, um, that would be, uh, it's much better to be that leader than not, if that makes sense. And I think that um, they they said that my shuttle missions were about a billion dollars, and I noticed that when I launched, um, they did not, uh, we did not launch a billion dollar bills off into the universe, right? All that money was spent here on earth. So there's a lot of practical reinvestment that happens. Um, the money is not all, it just thrown down a drain in other words. Eileen, what about you? What do you think? Well, you know, I agree with everything Terry says wholeheartedly. Um, countries that are strong and remain strong nations are nations that explore and go out, find new resources, you know, find new places and are able to grow their technology that way. So I would say exploration, you know, the the return on investment we get from that. But NASA puts out a publication every year called Spinoffs, and you can actually go online and find it. And those are the little technological things, I want to say little, but they're all uh, very important. Many of them are medical and you know, a technology like you know, the space station is completely solar powered. They recycle air. They recycle water. 
those type of technologies are used back here on Earth. So, you know, really two levels. It's the exploration and then the practical uh, benefits. Now, the Artemis II mission is part of this larger goal to eventually send astronauts to Mars. These missions help build on what scientists already know about space and the mechanics of space travel. What are some things, whether they be processes or technology itself, that exist specifically because of space exploration? Eileen, you mentioned solar power. Does anything else come to mind? Yeah, solar power mainly. You know, solar power will work close to Earth, but the farther you get back in space, the the weaker the sun rays are. So nuclear power will for, for electricity will have to be developed if we want to live farther out in the solar system. But <clears throat> to answer your question, you know, I always think of, you know, little things like, uh, you know, Velcro and juice bags and, you know, those little things that we use in our everyday life. But there's other things like, um, I, I would say, medical devices. Uh, there's type of ultrasounds that we have used in space and we've developed uh, vaccines in space. I, I do want to claim that not all of these work because this is uh, research, it's experimental, what we're doing. Um, protein crystal growth is a good example where you can grow protein crystals in a zero gravity environment and get very pure, uh, I want to say not affected or distorted by Earth's gravity. And then the uh, researchers can use these protein crystals to test medicine. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's research, so not all of it is fruitful initially, but over time, you know, it does develop into things that can be used back here on Earth. Well, a handful of listeners asked about spirituality, like this question from our text club. How have your experiences influenced your spiritual beliefs, if at all? Terry? So for me, um, I'm a Christian, and I still am. It didn't really change it. I think it maybe strengthened it. I had a, there's some, there was a few moments, but most of your space flight is just doing basic mechanical work. It's 99% mundane, you know, plugging boxes in, working procedures. And then every once in a while you look out and you see this incredible universe that we have. And it was, there was this one moment on a spacewalk where I stopped for a second. I looked out and it just was overwhelming. It was like I was hearing from God. I could see creation. This is something that humans aren't meant to see. Um, and then I had to get back to work because I had to put some grease on a bolt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like this incredible, I call it a juxtaposition of sublime and mundane. So I, I came, I just came away with this awe and wonder of the universe, of my own body. I did all kinds of ultrasounds and experiments on myself. Um, so I, I kind of don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's just such a, <laughs> there's such an amazing universe out there. I think Eileen, somebody pretty smart had to be involved. Yeah. Eileen, what about for you? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. My faith in God has only been increased by being in space. And I did not go out, I did not set out to do that. I remember back in the Air Force, we would say space is a place. And I thought that was kind of silly. But when you go up there, oh, it's another place where, you know, we're so busy, we're working. But towards the end of a mission, you have time to look out the window. And I remember these beautiful passes of Earth, you know, looking down at the Middle East, for example, the biblical areas, And thinking, that's where, that part of Earth is where humanity started. And, you know, we spread out among the Earth. And then you look down at these cities and you say, oh, God, there's, you know, there's New York City. There's 8 million people living in that one little dot. And you can see that the Earth's atmosphere is very, very thin. And you can see that at sunrise and sunset, that tiny little 
layer of air that's keeping us all alive. And then when you look in the other direction, you just see black. And you know that at this point, we have not found any other planets that can support life. And it's a little bit scary to realize we're on the surface of a ball that's turning and revolving around the sun, and that layer of air is all that's keeping us alive. And you can't help but to reflect really after the mission, like Terry said, you're real busy during the mission. But after you come back and you're on Earth and you start thinking about this, you're like, wow, I just can't believe that. You know, there's got to be a power greater than us that has made this tiny little oasis that we're living on. Stewart emails, given the varied backgrounds astronauts have, what do you believe are the shared characteristics of those who successfully completed the program? Terry? Yeah, that's a great point. The last task I had at NASA was going through applications, and all of the thousands of applicants are really strong technically, like everybody is a smart engineer, pilot, or whatever. So you have to have that foundation, that technical foundation, but I think the most important characteristic is the ability to get along with other people, you know, especially people from other countries, and so I think foreign languages, having traveled abroad, those are um, really important skills that you have to have in the astronaut office, and not every, not necessarily everybody has them. Mm. <laughs> so that was a that was a big one. Here's another question we got from quite a few people: How easy was it to communicate with family and friends back on Earth? Eileen, what does that process look like? Well, it's really changed a lot over the years, and that, that's really due to the technologies that are available. For example, on my first flight, we really didn't have the technology to talk to our families, and we didn't. We, we had to send an email to a secretary in the office, and she would print it out and give it to the families. And then for them to talk to us, they'd send her an email, and she would take it to mission control in person, and they would send it up to the space shuttle. Well, <laughs> 10 years later on my last flight, we had internet access that we could talk to our families. And now on the space station, Terry can talk to this a little bit more because he flew a more recent mission on the space station, but they can call down and talk to anybody anytime they want. Uh, you can't call them because that's all. what goes up is all controlled by mission control, but they can call down whether it's voice only or they can uh, get a video also, and they have much, uh, much better access, and that I think is very, very important for your, I want to say, your, the human side, your psychological side. Yeah, Terry, I'd love to hear you talk about that communication piece with your family and friends. Yeah, it was important because on, on a long-duration mission, and I had kids and a family back home, and so uh, they NASA would set up a weekly kind of Skype or Zoom uh, on the weekends that you could see them, although it required special equipment. It wasn't just like clicking a button on your phone. And then, like Eileen said, we have a voice over IP phone, so it's like WhatsApp audio or FaceTime audio, and as long as you have a connection with the satellite, you can call anybody for free and they can't call you. It's the world's best phone. <laughs> but And it cuts off automatically. So as you go around the Earth and you drop connection with the satellite, you'll just be talking and all of a sudden clip and you're done. So there, you, don't, you can't have super long conversations with mom, <laughs> which is good. You can call her, hey, mom, I'm doing great, and then it's over. So you're able to communicate. Now email is... Um, available. They don't have like texting, like instantaneous texting, but you can do email. So it's it's much better than what it was in the past, uh, which is important for the crew's mental health. 
Oh, someone left a message on our app, 1A Vox Pop. They say, I grew up in Elmira, New York, the same place that Eileen Collins is from. She is an absolute inspiration to be a little girl from the same hometown, learning that you can come from a humble place and go to community college and literally end up in the stars. She's inspired so many little girls to pursue math and science and, well, space. Eileen, you were the first woman to pilot the space shuttle during the 1995 Discovery mission. You were also the first to command a space shuttle mission. What does it mean? to you that in a couple of years on the Artemis 3 mission, a woman could be walking on the moon? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I love my little hometown. I love the people there. You know, hello, everyone. <laughs> but it means a lot to me to see that you know, women have come this far. And there will be a woman, obviously, on Artemis 2 and Artemis 3, and eventually a woman will walk on the surface of the moon. That's just a natural extension of human exploration and uh, the world's a little bit different today. Back when I first joined the Air Force, uh, women were just starting to fly in the military. I was actually in a test program that you know tested, can women fly military aircraft? That was back in 1978. And look how far we've come. Now we have you know women flying every aircraft in the military, and they have proved themselves to be you know just highly competent pilots in the airline industry. And now I think by having women on board on Artemis III, you know, as well as people representing all of the population here, I think that that is going to bring uh, a higher level of interest and you're going to see more and more, and more young people say, maybe I, can, maybe I can do that someday. Maybe I should do my homework. Maybe I should listen to my teacher. Maybe math isn't as hard as I say it is. And I think it provides that level of inspiration too. Well, someone else wants to know where each of you see NASA 100 years from now, Terry? That's a great question. Hopefully on Mars and on the moon and, you know, certainly our robotic program should be expansive throughout the solar system. A hundred years from now, we may be toying with going to other stars. The problem with other stars is they're really, 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 really far away and we need more advanced propulsion. Um, But hopefully, you know, people are living and working on the moon um, and exploring Mars. Um, that's interesting. A hundred years ago was 1923, and we came pretty far pretty fast, so we'll see what happens in the future. Eileen, what about for you in a hundred years? Yeah, I think people living and working on the moon and also on Mars, I think you're going to see people going there to work, you know, for example, to, you know, whether it's mining or helping keep the uh, equipment working. You're going to find more people going that are actually doing uh, some hands-on type work. And we will have, uh, probably most of it will be robotic and automatic, but I think you're still going to need people there. I think they'll be doing more scientific research. I don't think, you know, maybe people will go on vacation. You know, I think that that will be uh, something that many people will want to do, and it won't just be the ultra-rich. I think over time, as we fly more, it'll be safer, the cost will come down, and more people will be able to fly. I don't see in 100 years people want to live their entire life on the moon because I think people want to be on the earth where you have beaches and water and gravity and you know the, the things that I want to say the human body has evolved with. So I think people will still want to be on earth, but they'll, they'll visit the moon and they'll be visiting Mars. And as Terry said, about transportation farther away than Mars, some, I try to get young people inspired One of you could invent a mode of transportation that will get us going faster out of our solar system because maybe there is another planet like Earth. And if we find it, we're going to want to go there. 
Well, we will leave the conversation there. That's Eileen Collins. She's a former NASA astronaut. Her memoir is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. Also with us today, Terry Vertz. He's a former NASA astronaut. His latest book out this week is The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Eileen, Terry, thank you for your time and for fielding our listeners' questions. And if you have an idea for our Ask a Series, you want to hear from a group of experts about the work they do, you can always shoot us an email at 1A at WAMU.org or follow us on Instagram at The 1A Show. Today's show was produced by Barb Anguiano and Avery Jessa Chapnick, edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.